everyone, it's Tori again. I'm a third year medical student at the University of Melbourne. Welcome to PSI's fourth episode in the Freudian Slip. Today's episode will be on interventional neuropsychology with Professor Kate Hoy. Professor Kate is a clinical neuropsychologist and is also the head of interventional neuropsychology at Monash and also the deputy director of the Epworth Centre for Innovation in Mental Health. She currently leads a number of world-first clinical trials aiming at improving cognition in Alzheimer's, as well as in various other mental health disorders like schizophrenia, depression, and Huntington's disease. She's also investigating ways to optimize the efficacy of prefrontal brain stimulation techniques. Professor Kate, we're very grateful to feature you on our podcast today with all your expertise. Thank you. Thank you, Tori. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really excited to chat. I'm very excited too. So we might just kick off first with introducing the listener to the concept of interventional neuropsychology, Mm -hmm. like what even is it and what is the motivation behind it? Absolutely. So interventional neuropsychology is an area of neuropsychology where we're looking at ways where we can actually intervene um, in the symptoms and improve them. Clinical neuropsychology traditionally, um, you know, long time ago, back when I I was initially trained, really focused more on assessment and diagnosis. So what we would do, we would see a patient, we would assess their memory, their thinking, um, problem-solving skills, all of those things. We would let them know where their difficulties were and we would let them know what the prognosis was likely to be, how things were going to change over time. But really there was not much else we could do. Um, There was nothing we could offer to really intervene to improve those symptoms. You know, we could always offer things around how to manage them, like diaries, um, and and how to sort of change the environment to suit the difficulties. Interventional neuropsychology really came about from from a real desire to develop actual treatments where we could improve people's cognitive symptoms and improve um, their prognosis. Right. And then in terms of some of the techniques, like the brain stimulation, how does that actually work in its mechanism in targeting like the pathology underlying cognitive impairment, for example? Yeah, look, that's a really, really good question. So there's a couple of different types of brain stimulation. So the first most um, most well-known one is transcranial magnetic stimulation. So this is a form of brain stimulation where a magnetic pulse is sent into the brain um, via a handheld figure of eight coil. So this is all non-invasive. Patients sit in a comfortable chair, they're wide awake, and we hold the coil over the part of the brain that we want to stimulate. A magnetic pulse will pass into the brain and it will cause the neurons to fire. And when we do that over and over again, we can actually create more lasting changes in neuronal firing patterns. It's TMS, um, transcranial magnetic stimulation, or TMS as we call it, is most well known for depression and it's been approved for depression treatment um, in Australia as well as internationally. In the process of um, researching TMS for depression, we noticed that there were instances where people's memory improved. And that really set us on the path of can we um, can we use these techniques beyond depression and actually try and try and treat cognitive disorders. Now, when we look at cognitive disorders, that's a really broad range of disorders. Um, so you have disorders where cognition is the primary presenting problem. So Alzheimer's and dementia is an example of that. 
But you also have disorders where it is a really functionally limiting symptom, but not the main symptom. And a good example there is schizophrenia. So in schizophrenia, there are really significant attention, working memory problems and executive functioning problems um, that can really limit um, patients' ability to live day to day. And and that's in addition to um, the other positive symptoms of of schizophrenia or the um, psychosis, the negative symptoms as well. And so you can have cognition, cognitive impairment in many, many different ways. And so the mechanism of how that happens um, is different across disorders. But what we are sort of seeing fairly consistently is where you end up is impairment in dysfunctional connectivity. So what we know underlies successful cognition, so you know anyone's ability to successfully remember, remember or think or problem solve, it's dynamic activity throughout really key large-scale neural networks. We've come a very, very long way from the front part of the brain does this and the back part of the brain does that. We understand the brain now more as a network um, system. And so for cognition, what's really important is that that network works dynamically so that it increases activity when it needs to, it decreases activity when it needs to, and, you know, the networks can dynamically work together. That is the process which appears to be impaired in schizophrenia and working memory, in Alzheimer's and dementia. And that is what we're targeting with things like brain stimulation. We're trying to improve that connectivity. Right. Yeah. Time and time again, I'm hearing more about these functional networks or map like model of the brain. And I hope we learn more in the future as part of the curriculum. In terms of, because we've learned about um, ECT before, so how how does um, ECT differ from TMS then? Yeah, so ECT is um, an electrical stimulation. So TMS uses magnetic stimulation. ECT um, is quite different. It uses quite um, a a relatively high dose of um, electricity that passes through the brain. And the what is believed to be the therapeutic mechanism of ECT is induction of a seizure. So when someone has ECT for treatment, usually of depression, um, and it is a very effective treatment for depression, and it's still used today, patients are required to be under anaesthetic um, with a muscle relaxant so that when they have the seizure, um, they don't hurt themselves. And whilst it is effective at treating um, the symptoms of depression, it has a fairly long history of cognitive impairment following ECT. Now, there's been a lot of work in the last 15, 20 years um, to develop forms of ECT that minimise that, and and certainly we've seen that. But there is still um, a significant amount of stigma and concern around having ECT for patients, even though it is effective. Now, TMS kind of came out of searching for an alternative to ECT for people who have what is referred to as treatment-resistant depression, where medications and and, and talk therapy hasn't helped. Right. Okay. That clarifies it a lot. Yes. Um, So if we touch back onto the past research that has been conducted into the brain stimulation techniques, what other insights have been revealed about, for example, the different type of anatomical targets or the types of um, TMS? Because I was reading, there's like theta burst, there's also transcranial direct comment, and I just got a bit lost there. (laughs) Absolutely. So 
I mean, there's lots of different types of brain stimulation, so different sort of categories. We can sort of think of about it like that. And when I started this 15, 20 years ago, there was only two categories and now there's about six. So, you know, it's evolving really rapidly. So we have the magnetic stimulation um, category. And so TMS is is one of the ones um, I spoke about there. And then within that, you know, the protocol of how we stimulate the brain can be can be manipulated in many different ways. And, and traditionally the most common way of manipulating it is the frequency at which you apply the stimulation. So when I talked about the magnetic pulses, that's like a, a, um, a pulse. So if you gave one hertz TMS, it's one pulse every second. And, you know, you can hear hear the TMS and it feels like a little bit like a, a woodpecker tapping on your head. Patients refer to it as quite annoying, um, which I, I have had TMS and I agree, it's quite annoying. Um, but that's that's sort of one pulse per second um, and that's called um, low frequency TMS. And then you can have high frequency TMS where you stimulate at 10 hertz or even 20 hertz. And then things like theta burst, where theta burst is a very specific patterned form of stimulation. So it's actually 50 hertz, but given in um, three pulse bursts. And so it's very, very quick. Um, and what sort of the real advantage of theta burst is that you can give a treatment session in substantially less time because of the pattern nature of it. Um, it, it appears to be more effective from that point of view. Standard TMS session high low frequency between 30 and 40 minutes a theta burst one is three minutes so it is a really substantial reduction in in time so that's kind of the magnetic stimulation and then you have the um, electrical stimulation and they're things like transcranial direct current stimulation and transcranial alternating current these are devices where um, it's a very gentle electrical current um, that passes into the brain you have you just place two electrodes on the head you pass a current through those electrodes most of that current gets shunted away from the brain it, it doesn't pass in like magnetic um, fields can but there is a small enough amount that does get into the brain that can modulate um, brain cells one of the main differences is that in tms we can actually make brain cells fire so it's depolarizing we can we can induce an action potential we can't do that with TDCS. It's, it, it's not polarizing. And so what it does is it hyperpolarizes membranes such that it will make neurons more or less likely to fire depending on what else is going on in the brain. So it's more of a subtle manipulation of ongoing brain activity. Um, they're, they're very different approaches and you would use them for very different things. Um, the electrical stimulation are portable. And so we have um, two trials at the moment where um, patients um, with mild cognitive impairment and patients with mild Alzheimer's are, are giving themselves treatment in their own home. So we have devices we give them. They come in, we do the assessments, we give them the device and they go home and they do two weeks of treatment. Um, so it's portable and it's accessible. TMS has to be done in the clinic because of the physical infrastructure around that. So they're sort of the two main ones. Um, and then, you know, over the last few years, we've seen things like ultrasound stimulation and optogenetics, which is light stimulation. So there's a lot of sort of non-invasive types of brain stimulation that are being developed. 
Yeah, wow, that's amazing that some of them can be performed outpatient. That would be like very convenient. It can open up so many opportunities in the future, actually. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, on to a question kind of regarding like depression. Um, I know with ECT in medical school, we kind of get taught there are a few like indications. It can be second or third line, sometimes even uh, first line in acute like scenarios. What about the recommendations for TMS? Like where does it currently fit in the management algorithm for depression currently in terms of things like eligibility? So traditionally, um, well, it's been approved what is essentially referred to as treatment-resistant depression. And the level of treatment resistance will differ depending on jurisdiction. But essentially, um, you, would, you would approach TMS if you had not had improvement or seen any relief from um, medication or talk therapies. But you would likely um, try TMS before you went to something like ECT. So it kind of fits in that, that sort of area. There's certainly arguments and research looking at whether or not it could be a more first-line treatment. Um, you know, it's it's not a systemic treatment. Um, it doesn't affect the rest of the body. The side effects are incredibly um, minor. It directly um, modulates brain activity um, and, and no other parts of the body, which, you know, is a really beneficial from a point of view, whereas many um, antidepressant medications, for example, can have a number of physical side effects that people find quite intolerable. Right. Yeah, it's fascinating, actually. <laughs> so you talked a bit before about your the current clinical trials being conducted into mild cognitive impairment. I was wondering if you could talk more just a bit about the other trials your team is currently conducting into other diseases. Yeah, so um, look, the biggest focus um, my my group has had over the last few years has been in Alzheimer's. So we recently just finished a trial of theta burst stimulation from mild to moderate Alzheimer's. Um, so that was a really important study. It was the first time that we had used theta burst stimulation in this population, and it was a really targeted study in that we had a very specific therapeutic target in the brain that we wanted to modulate, and that's what we were targeting. So it was a very um, sort of evidence-based approach to can we improve this brain activity that we think is important and then that does that relate to improving um, cognition and so that was that's kind of what the the biggest effort has been over the last few years and then we also have the two at-home stimulations so um, both of those use gamma alternating current stimulation one of them is in mild Alzheimer's and the other one as I said is in mild cognitive impairment I also have a number of PhD students who are doing early stage research looking for therapeutic targets in the brain. So whenever we do brain stimulation, one of the important things is we don't want to just um, say, okay, there's memory impairment in Alzheimer's, let's stick the foil on the front and see what happens. We, we really need to develop it in such a way that we know the therapeutic target that we want, we know the brain activity we want to try and modulate, then we choose the brain stimulation that we think is, has the most chance of modulating that activity. And then we run a trial to see if, one, you're able to modulate the activity, and two, if modulating that activity actually had an effect on the symptom. That way, um, even if your trial is negative, you have learned something. Either the therapeutic target cannot be modulated with that type of brain stimulation or you can, and it actually didn't have an effect on symptoms. So it's, it's about developing trials so that even when you didn't find what you wanted, you can still take something away from it. And so I have students at the moment 
one student has just finished a trial looking at apathy in Huntington's disorder, which is a really significant functionally limiting symptom in patients with Huntington's disease. Um, And she's looking at brain activity, which might underlie these symptoms of apathy and whether or not alternating current can modulate modulate that activity. And so she's just finished that data collection and is writing up and analysing that data. Um, And my other two students just sort of a quarter of the way into their um, data collection. One of them is looking at targets for anxiety and in particular um, attentional control is a type of cognitive domain or area that is commonly associated with um, the onset and maintenance of anxiety and it appears to be transdiagnostic in that you see it across different anxiety presentations and so we're looking at whether or not we can modulate attentional control in people with different anxiety um, presentations and if that has an effect on their anxiety. So she's investigating that one. And my final student is looking at social cognition in schizophrenia using VR, so virtual reality and brain stimulation combined. So that project is really about if we can give someone VR training in sort of social cognition, so social situations, um, and apply stimulation at the same time as that, can we enhance their ability to learn from the sort of VR environment? We use VR because traditionally the sort of social cognitive training, if it's artificial, um, if it sort of feels lab-based, then it doesn't tend to translate as well to the real world. And there's been some evidence that VR can, you can put yourself into a social situation there and it's a, it's a bit more ecologically valid. So it's a bit more relevant to real world. So they're the sort of main areas that we have been looking at over the last few years. I'm so glad to hear that you guys are utilising VR as a potential like investigation tool because I just thought it always has amazing like potential but it's only been used so far as I know for like gaming for example so it's very exciting yeah look VR is really coming along there's a lot of VR in physiotherapy um actually and a lot of VR in um sort of rehab which has had some pretty good pretty good outcomes and there's some there's some sort of VR being used a little bit, mostly in research around exposure therapy and things like phobias um, and some OCD work as well. So it's VR starting to come a little bit more, um, a little bit more used and researched in, in the area of mental health as well. Yeah, can't wait till it becomes more widespread. Absolutely. In terms of challenges you've encountered in your um, current research, would you be able to elaborate on any? Um, look, recruitment's always the, the number one challenge when you're doing these types of clinical trials. We've actually had a pretty steady influx of people. Um, but, you know, particularly when we look at the Alzheimer's, you know, you're asking people to do a lot. So you're asking people to come in every day um, if they're in the Thetaverse trial for a period of between three and six weeks for treatment and also their care partners usually um, will come in with them or need to come in with them. With the at-home stimulation, we're asking people to, you know, with Alzheimer's to learn how to use these devices. And so all of those things can be challenging. What we find is approaching the research with participants as our research partners is really is effective. So 
getting their input on everything, getting their feedback on everything, um, you know, sitting with them and making sure they understand everything, um, redoing training if we need to do redo training, uh, doing Zoom, Zoom calls to monitor the at-home stimulation, just checking in really regularly about whether or not they're happy with the trial, if there's anything we can improve. And we've really found that is a really important part of clinical research uh, is to really approach participants, not as participants, but partners in the research. Um, and when you do that, you know, you, you develop projects that are more um, feasible, that, that patients are happy to participate in because they've given you the feedback about what you can improve. Absolutely. Um, in terms of implications for future clinical practice, I actually read very recently that from, I think, November 2021, like TMS services have been added to the MBS. I was amazed when I read that for eligible patients um, for, I think, medication resistant depression, yes. like you were saying. Yeah. So do you see this happening for other disorders like Alzheimer's disease? Yeah, look, I mean, so the, the Medicare um, listing of TMS for depression was a long, long process and it took a very, very long time. It was actually driven by Professor Paul Fitzgerald, who's our director here. Um, and so we've been working with him on that for a very long time. Um, and he did an outstanding job um, in getting that over the line. What that means is that, you know, it's always going to be harder for the first. Um, so we've gotten approval for, for depression. Um, for future indications, um, we know what's required. We know what data we need to actually collect to be able to make a successful application to Medicare. And then there's also the TGA pathway as well. So you can have a, a treatment or a treatment protocol listed in, on the TGA registry and it can be provided given approval and evidence that, that it's effective, um, but not, not have a Medicare rebate. So that's obviously an equity of access issue. Um, but there are a number of pathways where we can um, we can look to get these protocols out to patients um, when we have shown that they are effective. The other thing that the approval of TMS has done and, and the last five to ten years of the growth in TMS in Australia in treatment for depression is that we have a clinical infrastructure throughout the country already set up. There are cl TMS clinics, you know, in every state of the country. There are TMS Australia is a is a company that was set up a number of years ago, and they have clinics throughout Victoria, New South Wales, and Queensland, and will be expanding that in the coming years. That's really important because that infrastructure will be there, and so you don't, you know, if we are able to get approval for Alzheimer's, you don't need to then invent an infrastructure to, to provide the treatment to the public. It exists. And it exists because of, um, of what we're able to do with depression. So I think that the process will be hopefully easier because, you know, the way was paved with depression um, and TMS earlier. Right. You mentioned like with all these like TMS clinics actually already present around Australia, does this, um, is this being delivered by um, like, like trainees or doctors, like psychiatrists, or will this have an impact on like the specialist training that a psychiatrist are required to do? Yeah, so um, we started a training course in 2013. And so we've trained hundreds of psychiatrists and nurses through the research centre here. And we have a, um, an online course as well that people can do. It's not, it's currently on course while we're just sort of updating things and, and it involves a level of accreditation as well. And so, yes, the college will 
now that um, the Medicare approval has been given, there will be, you know, accredited training courses and things like that. But the treatment is usually provided by either a psychiatrist or a um, or a nurse, a registered nurse, and that is around. Um, there are some potential adverse effects of TMS, and so you do need to have that um, medical training to provide the treatment to patients in the instance that there may be a medical incident that you need to respond to. Right. Um, sounds very exciting. I think the prospect of this just expanding, it just blows my mind. <laughs> Absolutely. And, I mean, the, so the, the interventional neuropsychology is the, the area that I work in and Paul Fitzgerald works in the area of interventional psychiatry. And so the other, the other thing, Charles, that he's running here at the moment, um, we're looking at OCD. Uh, we're also involved in a trial looking at autism with Professor Peter Enterbot through Deakin. Um, there's been PTSD, we've done research in PTSD in the past, um, in schizophrenia for hallucinations and for negative symptoms as well as cognitive impairment. And so there really is a range of, of um, disorders that, that brain stimulation will be applicable to just because of the way in which it works and, and the way in which these disorders are brain-based, um, predominantly connectivity disorders. Yeah. I'm just curious, from your awareness, where is Australia at in terms of, like, using brain stimulation techniques compared to other countries? Um, from a research perspective, we are probably one of the top countries um, researching brain stimulation. We're, we're very... We've got a really strong brain stimulation community. Um, from a clinical perspective, so the FDA approval came out quite a while ago, and so it's probably more widespread in the US and also Canada. There's also a really, really strong community in um, Europe and in Asia as well. And so, you know, it really is a global research effort, but Australia really is up there with both research clinical we're probably a little bit further behind just because it took so long to get it to get it in the public funding oh. but catching up rapidly yeah oh my goodness can't wait till it just spreads just becomes very global yeah. um but yeah i think that's what we have time for for now okay thank you so much for your fascinating insight into brain simulation techniques um i've been like absolutely captivated by your research <laughs> i'm sure you're aware i'm sure listeners are also incredibly excited about the outlook for future psychiatry and neurology treatment modalities once again thank you so much no problem at all thank you for having me Thank you again, Dr. Kate, for your wonderful input and also a shout out to our sponsors, Piff. Thank you also to Joseph McDade for the ending theme. See you in our next episode.